morning. Get settled here. I want to add my welcome to uh, everyone who's here, especially um, our cross-cultural partners who are visiting, those of you who may be guests and, and our friends joining online. My name is Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church, and it is my privilege to uh, speak to you this morning. I have been spending quite a bit of time in the last few weeks with people and processes affiliated with the medical profession. But unrelated to my own physiological defects, I came across an article about a woman who had received a last chance heart transplant. She'd survived almost 40 years with a congenital heart defect that among her own generation, at least, she was born in the early 1980s, killed over 50% of the people who were born with it. Her condition is known as hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Well, for simplicity, I'm going to turn it into an acronym. I'm going to call it HLHS. One of my disabilities from my service in the U.S. military is, is something that's called over-acronymization, or OA, as we like to call it. Um, I've been petitioning the Veterans Administration, the VA, for this for a, a time, but uh, so far they haven't been buying it in my case. But in, in this HLHS, one side of the heart does not develop correctly. Children are born with this. And the left side of the heart, which pumps oxygen-rich blood to the rest of your body, doesn't function. And so this, this oxygen-deprived blood does not get to the rest of the body. And the, the deleterious effects of this form of heart disease are significant. It, it's neurodevelopmental impairments that lead to developmental disabilities and behavioral abnormalities, not to mention just the physical effects of your body not getting properly oxygenated blood and the effects that that would have on one's physical strength and stamina. There's no real curative treatment for HLHS. For most, like the woman in this article, Long-term survivability is ultimately dependent upon a heart transplant. Well, when in an age when we can get most or many, rather, parts of our body replaced by a transplant, we probably might take this modern medical miracle of a heart transplant for granted. I'm 57 years old, or at least I will be in nine days, and the first human heart transplant occurred in the year of my birth. But little was known about the human heart in the age of antiquity. Certainly the ancients in the ancient Near East knew that the heart beat and you lived, and when it stopped beating, you died. But they didn't really understand how it worked. And the imagery that we see in the Bible describes the heart as the intangibles that constitute what it means to be human. It's, it's our personality, our intellect. Our emotions and our will is when the Bible uses this as, excuse me, this term heart. That's what it's speaking of. It's because the heart stands for the human personality that the Bible tells us that, that God looks at our hearts 
to see if we are his people. He says, humans, you look at the outside, but God looks at the heart of a person. It's because the heart stands for human personality in the Bible that the prophet Ezekiel tells us that that God wants to renew our heart. But see, there's this congenital heart defect that we're all born with, right? We have defective hearts. The Bible refers to it as an uncircumcised heart. It's a heart that's not yet bound to God. This this imagery of circumcision from the Old Testament, this physical sign of belonging to God's people and part of being part of a covenant community, a heart that is not yet bound to God, the Bible refers to as an uncircumcised heart. We're all born with it. But the good news for you and I, friends, is that the one true living God who created us to bear his image, to reflect his heart and his character, he's in the business of renewing and transforming hearts. The Apostle Paul calls this heart transformation that's wrought in the power of the Holy Spirit, he calls it a circumcision of the heart, a transformation that removes this defect that all of us are born with. But just as a a young physical heart, a young physical human heart needs to strengthen as we grow, so do our spiritual hearts. And so we're called to walk in a new way of life as faithful members of a new covenant community. It's our mission statement. It's moving together into the remarkable love of Jesus Christ. And it's a lifelong process of ongoing transformation that we're called to. Paul describes it in Ephesians 4 as the building up of the body of Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, friends, God isn't just after part of our hearts or part of our lives. You see, he's after every single part of you and me, in every part of our personality, in every segment of our life. In our obedience to what God requires of us as his followers, as, as kingdom citizens, as, a, as ambassadors of Christ, it can't be half-hearted in the spiritual sense. So what's the connection that I'm hoping you see here between a woman born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome and her half-hearted struggle just to remain alive and our spiritual life. It's the half-hearted spiritual life has just as poor of a prognosis for survivability as the person born with HLHS. When we're half-hearted Christians... The body of Christ suffers. The world suffers. A half-hearted spiritual life, it affects our ability to reason, our ability to think and to walk and to serve. And half-heartedness rather, leads to half-stepping in the Christian life. And if left unaddressed, it can lead to spiritual death. Now, one would think that we're, if we're afflicted with this impediment to our spiritual formation, that, that we would be aware of it. 
But what if you and I can have this defect and yet have no acute awareness of it? And I'm not talking about the heart not yet bound to God. I'm talking about the heart that has been circumcised but is yet not fully developed. What if we can have this defect and not be acutely aware of it? It was a real problem for the divided kingdom of Israel, as we see in our text. And it's a real problem in our own divided modern-day culture today. You see, the prophets were the pediatric cardiologists to God's spiritual children of Israel that we see in the New Testament. These prophets revealed God's assessment of the true condition of their hearts and his displeasure with their failure to uphold the covenant. But these prophets also revealed God's own heart, his personality, by reminding them of the the hope that God steadfastly holds out for those who change their ways, and along with the consequences for those who do not. Old Testament Israel had the law and the prophets, but we have access to to the greatest cardiologist of all of human history, the enduring, eternal, and living word of God through the Holy Spirit that lives in our hearts. But all we have to do is seek and to listen. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word that has been preserved and passed down to us through the ages, Lord. The word of your prophets, which admittedly at times can just seem so hard to read and hard to connect with, Lord. But I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the message that you have today. Superintend my words, Lord. You know I need your help this morning. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're in our journey through the book of the Minor Prophets in our sermon series, and we're at the book of Micah. Now, Micah was one of the four prophets, along with Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah, who ministered from the middle to the end of the 8th century before Christ in Israel. Now, the kingdom was divided, and Israel had, had tracked further and further away from both the right heart practices of their faith under the leadership of, of a variety of kings, most of whom the Bible tells us were evil. Nevertheless, the, the latter half of the 8th century before Christ was a time of great prosperity for Israel, which only further entrenched them in their unfaithfulness. You can see that if, if your life is good and things are working, then if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It was a time of great prosperity, but the hearts of the people of Israel, and particularly those who were entrusted to lead them, were far, far from God. The poor were being exploited. The rich and powerful were favored. The religious leadership distorted the covenant by by preaching half-truths to the people. They weren't preaching the full countenance of what God had commanded for his people. And so the people worshipped many of the false gods that you and I in this modern day and age can relate to. The pursuit of wealth and security and success. They had adopted a a deficient view of of who God was and a posture of of self-sufficiency. It was everyone do what's best for themselves. A manner of life that 
that stunted their spiritual formation. And it's precisely this, this picture of covenant unfaithfulness that, that makes the written words of these prophets, the very words of God, so valuable to us as new covenant Christians, particularly as, as Westerners in this day and age. Well, the thrust of Micah's message in this book is, is a call for spiritual and social reform. It's a, it's a call to restore the interconnectedness between faith and worship and the love of one's neighbor. And I believe it's a call that's, that's very much needed in our own time and in our own city. Micah, he, he organizes his sermons that are approximately 20 prophecies into this book, into three cycles. Each cycle beginning with a judgment oracle against the nation for having failed to remain faithful to the covenant and being followed by a salvation oracle that's based on God's promises to Abraham and the patriarchs to be their God forever. And, and so reflecting both of God's aspects of the Lord's covenant with Israel. Well, as we heard this morning, our, our focal point in the book is, is this text from Micah 6, verses 1 to 8. Again, this, this book is a, is a compendium of Micah's sermons that he's gone up to the city of Jerusalem to deliver. In verse 8, which in particular was the inspiration for the title of this, this whole series, to, to love justice and to do mercy. This one verse is so important to our faith. It reveals the character of God and his demands for the inseparability of how we're to worship and behave toward one another. So, so let me reiterate this key point. You might be struggling to follow me. I'm struggling to present all of this to you. But I want you, if you remember only one thing from this sermon, please remember this. That our worship of God... And how we love our neighbors are inseparable in the eyes of God. Inseparable in the eyes of God. We, we heard this in this passage this morning from the call to worship from the book of Matthew chapter 25. You see, Matthew, or excuse me, Micah chapter 6 verses 1 to 8 is our anchor point. But I, I want to try and paint this picture of of what Micah's getting at here. So if you turn with me, if you will, to the to Micah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw, he, Micah, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. We don't know much about who Micah was. This one verse tells us where he's from. We theorize he's, he's a countryman. He's a man of the country. He's not a city person. But over the course of his roughly 20-year period in ministry, he repeatedly goes to the city of Jerusalem to preach these prophetic words to the people who lived and worked there. And, and what does, what's the charge that God has against his people? Well, like all of the minor prophets, it's, it's covenant unfaithfulness. And what was the evidence? It was that they had separated from their worship, which was defective in and of itself, their love of neighbor. They had a defective and distorted 
and a half-hearted theology that manifested as injustice and was perpetrated by force and by fraud or deception. And so we see here that Micah has particularly harsh words for the capital cities because he's preaching in this first part to both the, the capital city of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, and in the capital city of Jerusalem, which was the capital of the southern kingdom. He's preaching there because those were where the leaders, the national leaders were, those who were charged with restraining evil and injustice. And they had become insensitive to the plight of their own people. Undoubtedly, there was sin in the outlying areas, as we see in the in the latter verses of chapter 1, where he, he proceeds through these various cities, making a wordplay on the names of the cities and, and what would happen to them. There was sin in the country and among the common people, but it was nothing compared to the evil that was being committed by the ruling classes. And what troubled Micah and God far more was the sin in the, in the courts and in the palaces and in the temples, the very places where people would expect to find justice. And worse yet was that they were working together to perpetrate these injustices among the people. And so he denounces these two groups in the first part of the book, the rulers and the prophets, for perverting justice and, and allowing injustice to proliferate. Look with me in, at chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Well, in the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament, we, we find two words predominantly translated into our contemporary English as justice. Sadiq and Mishpat. I'm not trying to impress you with my Hebrew. It's, it's unimpressive. But the point is, is that, that these are the two words that, that occur most commonly, but they're interrelated. They're connected in their meaning. This first word refers to a, a life of right relationships between people. It's this quality of being just and, and the images of a, of a legal court properly dispensing justice. We might call it as primary justice. It's primary because if, if primary justice prevails throughout the land, then there's no real need for the second form of justice, which is one of rectifying or restorative justice. It's, it's this advocating for the vulnerable and, and creating social structures that prevent injustice. Again, this legal imagery of someone coming to the court and the court deciding to right a wrong of injustice. So in three, chapter 3, verse 1, he's, he's speaking to the political leadership and the administrators of justice. But note, he says also, and the rulers of the house of Israel. He's not only speaking to the political leadership and the religious leadership and the and the justices of the court, but he's, he's speaking to the leaders of the tribes and the very households. And that, my friends, means it applies to us as well. In three, in, the, in verses two through three, he says, you, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people, 
and their flesh from off their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. It's, it's a striking image. It's, it's hyperbolic. I don't think they were actually stripping the flesh off people and eating them. But the point he's making is that those who were entrusted to live in a state of, of justice and to administer restorative justice to those whose justice had been violated, they were literally feeding on those who they were responsible to defend. In verse 5, he says that the prophets are preaching, but everything they said led the people astray. And, and worse, the prophets are preaching for money. And, and what's the judgment that Micah prophesies for these rulers and these prophets? In verse 4, he says, they'll cry to the Lord. He's speaking of the rulers. They will cry to the Lord, but, but the Lord will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. And down to verse 6 for the for the prophets, he says, Therefore it shall be like night to you without a vision and darkness to you without divination. You see, it's, it, it, it sort of points us back, not at the time he wrote it, but in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, Jesus says, The measure you use is the measure that it will be given back to you, and that's exactly what God is doing here. The rulers have turned a blind eye to those who have cried for justice. And so in their dire time of need, when they cry out to God, God hides his face from them. The prophets were, were bearing false witness and in, in leading people astray. And so God takes away their ability to, to preach with any sort of wisdom or foresight. Well, this whole issue of justice makes a lot of us uncomfortable. I have to admit that even thinking that this was where I felt led in this topic made me think, I don't really want to go there. I think the evangelical church is, is finding itself increasingly, increasingly polarized and divided over issues of, of justice in our society and culture. The mere fact that I might tie words like social injustice together has probably already sent some people to a different place in their mind that I would hope you would be led this morning. It feels increasingly difficult and, and hostile and to enter into any sort of meaningful conversation both inside our walls and let alone among the broader culture. When we talk about Things like social justice, the terms have been corrupted into a pejorative sense. Where someone says, well, that's not the, that's not the gospel. Or that's liberalism. Or it's wokeness. We throw around terms like critical race theory, which I don't even know what it means. Or Marxism. I majored in political science. Couldn't give you the definition today. But my point is, is that we've become entrenched as a culture onto extreme ends of a spectrum, that when we hear something that we think threatens our belief system or our way of life, we immediately go to battle. And so it makes it increasingly hard to have the conversation. And it intimidates me this morning to even talk about it with you. 
Well, biblical justice includes all forms of God-ordained justice, including the rectifying justice that belongs to the government, right, what we'd call public or legal justice, as well as the justice between individuals that we might call inter-individual justice, and justice involving organizations or groups, or what we might call social justice. We desperately, as the church, need to grow in our individual and collective capacity to have productive and meaningful internal dialogue about this topic, as well as advocating for cultural change. You see, we can unwittingly contribute to systems of injustice. We do it from a place of complacency where we we might fail to recognize unjust social structures just because of where God has placed us in a sphere of influence. Some of these issues don't affect you and I. Or from a place of comfort or even fear, we can find ourselves redefining good and evil to our own advantage and for our own self-preservation. And so, friends, all I'm saying here is, is that we would do well to, to examine our own hearts and to ask ourselves, do we, do we understand what God is calling us to with regards to how we propagate the flourishing of all of human life for all people who've been created in the image of God? Have we examined our hearts? If God made you and I righteous in Christ when we did not deserve it, then our only reasonable response is to do the same for others. To do justice from our sermon text this morning, as God has told the Israelites what is good and what he requires of them, it doesn't mean just to value justice or to not personally commit injustice. It doesn't mean just to value it or to think about it or to convince others to act justly. It it, it means to actually enter in and to do things justly ourselves. But it's not only something that we must do. It's something that we must do over a a considerable period of time. It has to become part of our our manner of life, our, our walk with God. We have to be persistent in it. And it feels overwhelming when you think of all the injustices in the world today. Each of us is only one person. But as the church, we, we have others whom we're in community with, who, who are called to move alongside us. It, it, it doesn't take a lot of us to produce some change. But we have to hang in there when, when things are frustrating or no change seems to come, or we're feeling overwhelmed by just the magnitude of the problem. You see, to do the good that the Lord requires is to do what is fair and what is just to our neighbor. You see, God has been faithful to the covenant. He's, he's kept his side of the arrangement and true to his nature and character He's been loyal in his love toward Israel, 
and yet they've not been loyal in their love toward God and neighbor. Well, I'm going to jump over the other two-thirds of this sermon to the end for the sake of time. And I want to end by talking about walking humbly with God. You see, to do the good that the Lord requires begins with, with taking God seriously and, and at his word. And I, and I believe all of us in this room do. But this half-heartedness can creep in from our culture and, and, and through the spiritual battle that's being waged in, in places that we can't even see. And through misunderstandings of theology and what God requires of us. And becoming entrenched in our habits. You see, the, the prophets in Micah's day, their theology was deformed because they only preached one part of what God required of them. They, they talked about God's personality and his character. That he was loving and that he was present and that he was steadfast and loyal and faithful. But they ignored the part that God would not leave the guilty unpunished. Another unpopular topic to talk about in a sermon. You see, this, this scene of judgment of the sheep and the goats, that's, that's the Lord Jesus' pronouncement to us as his people that we will all be accountable for what we do in this life while we await the return of the king. And so God calls us. He says, you know what is good to do justice, and to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Well, what are some applications that, that we can take away? I've already mentioned one, that we, we can place ourselves before the Lord in humility and ask him to reveal to us where we may be half-hearted or half-stepping with the Lord. Our spiritual journey, our, our process of sanctification, it's lifelong. We have seasons of making great progress and we have seasons of stagnation and we might even experience seasons of moving backwards. But we do well to ask ourselves the question that, that where perhaps is this taking root in our life? And we can ask it of God and we can ask it of ourselves and we can ask it of one another. And I want to encourage all of us individually and as a church to, to begin to think about an issue of justice in our society for which we can become passionate. If you've been passionate about the sanctity of human life, you've been passionate about social justice. Maybe it's Racial inequality or affordable health care, affordable housing, hunger and food security, a living wage, voting rights, criminal justice reform. There's a lot of issues that we can choose from. And we don't have to try to solve all of them, but we should be passionate about some of them. We should be passionate, God help us, at least about one of them. And then ask God to reveal to us how we can begin to walk humbly with him and others toward engaging with flawed human systems in order to, to rectify a current injustice. See, it's an, that's an important concept of biblical justice. 
It's not just that we know what justice is, but that we seek to rectify or to correct systems that perpetrate injustice. On a more personal or simple level, maybe before we make a social media post, we could, or respond to another's, we could ask ourselves, am I demonstrating compassion and mercy and loving kindness to this other person? Are my thoughts, words, and deeds, are they sowing seeds of love? Or, as was the case in our prophecies this morning, are they sowing violence? There's plenty of oracles of hope that that point to the risen Christ throughout this book. I've touched on none of them. They're throughout, and I would encourage you to, to look for them in the book. But I want to end with looking at chapter 7, if you would, starting in verse 18. It's a, it's a key verse in this book. It ends with, who is a God like you? It's an interesting play on Micah's name. His name literally means, who is like Yahweh? Me means who, Ka means like or as, and Yah, Yahweh. My name is Michael. Michael, who is like God. It doesn't mean, oh, there's Mike, who's like God. It, it's a question mark. There goes Mike, who's like God. I mean, certainly not him. And, and it wasn't Micah either. And so Micah ends by, by giving this play on his name. Who is a God like you? He says, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And brothers and sisters, you and I, as as devoted followers of the, the risen Christ, these are the same promises to you and me. And we can serve because we've been served, and we can love because we've been loved, and we can lift others up because we've been lifted up. You see, every aspect of our lives becomes a platform for human flourishing when our worship of God is matched for our love of neighbor. And so, therefore, we should do good as the Lord requires by acting justly and with compassion toward others. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we long to be a people that you would look upon and see us as a people after your own hearts. And Lord, you know that this world isn't an easy place to live in, and yet um, you've created us in your image. You've called us to be co-rulers with you over all of creation. You call us to a place of stewardship of your creation, and in particular to care for those who bear your image, not only those in the family of Christ, Lord, but those all over the face of the earth. 
your prophecy in this book, Lord, was, was not just to the nation of Israel, but as, as you tell us in, in your very first verses, you say, hear all the people of the world. You are our God. And so, Father, we pray that, um, that we would grow in our attentiveness to your Holy Spirit. That you would reveal to us, Lord, how we can grow. That you, having removed this defect in our hearts, are calling us to strengthen our hearts and be transformed ever greater into the likeness of Christ until he returns, Lord, and we are glorified body and soul and spending eternity with you. God, help us to not shy away from difficult conversations about justice or fear about how we'll be labeled or what people will think, Lord. Or, But Lord, help us to, to see that that in your eyes, God, our worship of you and how we love our neighbor is inseparable. The Lord Jesus tells us that love of God and love of neighbor fulfill all of the law and the prophets. And so, Lord, give us strength to be faithful in this walk. Help us to walk in humility with you and with one another. Grow us in our capacity to love you completely, to love ourselves correctly, and to love others compassionately. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us stand together.